This morning, we begin a new series, the study of the book of James. James is certainly well-suited for Presbyterians. It is not entirely without justification that our denomination has developed the reputation of being a predominantly intellectual denomination. We take very seriously doctrine and careful interpretation of Scripture with a heavy focus on the exegesis in our sermons. And this is a, is a very good thing. However, with that comes a reputation of lacking in an essential arena of faith, that is, living it out in a lost world. And I say this not as a criticism of any of us as individuals, but rather as recognition of a moniker we each potentially bear and therefore must carefully consider whether it applies to us personally. James is a very clear declaration of what it means to live out your faith in Jesus. It is a very practical book, but that practicality brings a burden. If our charge as believers is clearly outlined, then there is little left for excuse when we fail to live it. Great sermons are wonderful. We are inspired by words. The right phrase can evoke emotion, give pause for consideration, or even convict. Yet those emotional responses produce no results of their own account. Ultimately, it is action that is required. James speaks clearly to the nature of true faith as bearing the fruit of loving service to others. He makes clear that although we are not justified by our works, that is, declared righteous before God, only the redemptive sacrifice of Christ can do that. Good works, however, are the necessary and inevitable demonstration of the faith we profess. Good works don't produce faith, but faith produces good works. Though we can tell the type of the tree by its bark and leaf, it is the fruit on the tree that proves its genuine worth. This is not to paint a picture that the book of James is about us or what we do. Far from it. James is most assuredly a God-centered book. Chapter 1, verse 5, God is the one who gives wisdom. Verse 13, God is holy and cannot be tempted by evil. Verse 17, God is the giver and source of every good thing. Chapter 2, verse 5, God has chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith. God is the one. It is God who is worthy of our faith. God is our Lord and Father. God is the great judge. God is gracious, merciful, and compassionate. We live in a day and age when we realize quite readily the influence of the world around us. Materialism and self-focus have risen to the level of false gods in our culture, resulting in an idolatry not of stone or wood carvings, but of ourselves. This is one reason the book of James is so applicable for us. James rebukes his readers for their worldliness and challenges them to seek divine wisdom in working out these problems and getting right with God. Dealing with churches that have become splintered with internal bickering and strife, and which have become worldly in nature, James defines to his readers what true faith is. He breaks it down into five distinct aspects. First, true faith endures trials and temptations. 
Second, true faith consists of doing, not just hearing. Third, true faith displays wisdom, not just speaking. Fourth, true faith befriends God through humility. And the fifth one, true faith is blessed through patience, prayer, and love. Now this morning we will focus on the first aspect. True faith endures trials and temptations. And I do wish we could spend a month of Sundays on this one aspect. But I will endeavor to boil it down this morning without watering it down. So as we embark on this study, turn with me to the book of James in your Bibles, just after Hebrews. And we'll begin in chapter 1, and I will read verses 1 through 18. Receive now the word of God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. See, now James gets right to it. He has this quick greeting, and now he's jumping right into the meat of the matter. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Praise God for his word. Let's take a moment now and pray as we consider this. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have illuminated our souls, our minds, our lives with the written word, that through it we can know and understand your nature, that although you reveal yourself through creation, you more fully reveal yourself through the written word. We are grateful for that. God, we thank you for the wisdom it offers. Lord, we ask that this morning, uh, a text so rich in implication that 
somehow I would do it justice. Uh, I ask for uh, your grace and the covering work of the Holy Spirit where I may err, and that this morning we will readily realize what it is you ask us to glean from your word and apply in our lives. We ask this in the glorious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You know, the human body is amazing. Apart from it, almost everything we know in life is reduced or diminished through continued use. Draw with a pencil, and as you scrape it across the paper, the graphite gets smaller, requiring you to con- continually resharpen it until all that is left is a nub. Turn the pencil over to erase a mistake, and with each mistake, the little red button of an eraser gets smaller and smaller. This is why the adage that the things you own end up owning you is so true. We spend so much of our time and resources maintaining things we own. Cars, mowers, our houses, the list goes on. The more we use something, the less it becomes. It is either used up or worn down, but not so with the human body. It is precisely the lack of use that diminishes our physical bodies and mental capabilities. One of the greatest enemies of our bodies is injury, and not because of the damage that is done, because our bodies have amazing recuperative and healing abilities, but because of the loss of muscle and flexibility that the recovery time demands. Atrophy through non-use is the enemy of our bodies, not exercise. However, if you use your muscles, your whole body becomes stronger. Muscles, tendons, sinews, even bones gain strength through use. Remarkably, even our brains benefit from physical exercise as well as mental exercise. And it is the same with faith. Why should we count it as all joy when we encounter trials? Because those trials strengthen us. Spiritual endurance produces steadfastness, the ability to resist greater temptations. And we need to persevere in these continued and repeated trials that we would become perfect and complete. Never give up. Never seek to coast in your faith. It is the continued resistance to our fallen nature and the world around us that is our trial. And we are to doggedly press forward until the day Christ calls us home. Far too often, Christianity, uh, faith in Jesus, is sold to non-believers as a panacea for all their problems in life. Believe in Jesus, and he will take away all your problems and pains. Well, this is simply not true. Not only is this watered-down Christianity, which makes it decidedly unchristian, it is patently false and will lead to disillusioned and disappointed converts who may never fully realize what Christ has done and offered to them. It is also extremely self-serving. It's saying The purpose of our faith is ourselves, when the true focus of the faith should always be God. Jesus offers us pardon from what we are due from the next life, the eternal one, not this mortal and short one. In fact, the grand and magnificent history of the church centers around men and women who have suffered tremendously for their faith, not despite it. 
Read Scripture, and it is quickly evident that, as believers, we will experience trials in this life. Throughout the Psalms and Proverbs, we read the promises that God delivers the faithful from trials. That doesn't mean the faithful are removed from the trial, but that God sees them through it, delivers them through it. Jesus warns us in the Gospels that the world will hate us for our faith, and that Satan, whose kingdom is this world, hates us because in us, in us, he sees Jesus. So, if trials are inevitable and certain, shouldn't that be disappointing or even demoralizing? Well, not at all. Once we understand the purpose of trials, it is easier to accept them as an integral and beneficial aspect of faith. Well, that raises the question, what is the role of trials in our faith? It is important to understand that faith is tested through trials, not produced by trials. Let me say that again. Faith is tested through trials, not produced by trials. Trials reveal what faith we do have. Not, not because God doesn't know how much faith we have, but so that our faith will be evident to ourselves and to those around us. This knowledge then feeds our faith as we ourselves witness God's promises fulfilled. When new trials arise, and they most certainly will, we are better able to withstand them because they have tested and strengthened our faith. We notice that it is faith that is tested, not belief. And it shows that faith is important and precious because only precious things are tested so thoroughly. Charles Spurgeon said, Faith is as vital to salvation as the heart is vital to the body. Hence, the javelins of the enemy are mainly aimed at this essential grace. So if trials do not produce faith, what does? Romans chapter 10, verse 17 tells us, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Supernaturally, faith is built in us as we hear, understand, and trust in God's word. God does not send trials to break down or destroy our faith. James will come back to this point and explain it more in verses 13 to 18. James does tell us that trials produce steadfastness, meaning perseverance or patience. Trials don't produce faith, but when trials are received with faith, it produces steadfastness. Another word for this would be resilience. Yet, Steadfastness is not inevitably produced in times of trial. It's not simply a matter of enduring it or waiting it out. If difficulties are received in unbelief and grumbling, trials can produce bitterness and discouragement. This is why James exhorted us to count it all joy. Counting it all joy is a response of faith to a time of trial. James doesn't tell us that we will experience all joy. He isn't trying to sell us that trials, or happy experiences. He tells us to count it all joy. Imperative here is a decisiveness on the part of the believer to find and hold to joy in the midst of trial. This takes effort and a purposeful attitude. It doesn't happen all by itself. We must decide to wade our way through the trial, looking for Christ in the midst of it, seeking the Father's will as to why we are experiencing it, and being determined to fulfill our role in furthering his kingdom here on earth in the process. 
Have you ever pushed yourself really hard in order to accomplish something lasting? That joy you felt at the finish line? That is what is offered us if we purpose ourselves to persevere in the midst of trials, knowing that we are serving Jesus and the Holy Spirit as at work in us. James goes on and says, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The work of a patient endurance comes slowly, must be allowed to have full bloom. How ridiculous it would be to pray to God, give me patience and give it to me now. No, we must realize that the aspect of enduring is crucial to the proving of our faith. Enduring, being steadfast, is not a matter of going through something difficult in which takes effort. That's the definition of work. Endurance, steadfastness, requires pressing beyond your perceived capacity. It is only then that we truly rely on God and demonstrate faith. That is, trusting what you cannot see and relying upon it. A common sifting technique in advanced military training is to press a man physically and mentally beyond his own perceived capacity. What he does then determines whether he has what it takes to serve. If, when they reach that breaking point, trainees give up, the instructors know the individual cannot go beyond themselves and therefore would detract from a team and not add to it. If, however, that individual continues on trusting that the energy and focus will come from somewhere, they demonstrate an ability to reach outside of themselves. It's very similar with faith. If we press on only to the point where we do not have the ability within ourselves and give up, <clears throat> that's not faith. If, however, the believer continues beyond their own ability and trusts that God will take care of them and that moving forward trusting in God when they cannot see how it is possible, that is faith. That is faith demonstrated to the individual who then has a very real experience that faith does not fail and that God can be trusted. That saint will be quicker to rely on God in the future. Trials can prove a wonderful work of God in us. Many of us can look back at previous times of trial and remember how close we felt to God in the midst of that. How quickly we would recognize the importance of clinging, clinging to him and how wonderful his sheltering arms were. Another difficult mindset to have is the expectation of trials. Of course we desire to avoid difficulties. It is not normal to go looking for persecution. We call that person a masochist. But not wanting tribulation and running from it are two very different things. From a standpoint, in the midst of trials, we commonly talk about asking God, what is your purpose for me in this? Instead of just asking, why me? And that is a good and proper question. But if we take it a step further, our natural response should be, okay, here's the trial I was expecting. This psychological response to this mindset is tremendously advantageous. When I was at VMI, it was common to get woken up in the middle of the night for physical and mental harassment. We called them sweat parties. After a few months, you began to learn the telltale signs that another workout was coming. The difference between being caught off guard for one of these sweat parties 
and knowing it was coming was tremendous. Aware that it was coming, you adapted quickly and leaned into it with purpose, rather than being confused and overwhelmed. In my own military training, it was common for an instructor to suddenly, without warning, yell out to all the recruits, stay alert! And everyone was expected to immediately and without hesitation yell back, stay alive! This developed a situational awareness, an expectation of a challenge to come, with a reflexive response that fostered a right attitude in the soldier. Being caught unawares of a danger in combat can almost certainly be fatal. Yet the soldier who is prepared to respond can overcome and survive. It is the same with faith trials. Notice that James tells us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, not if. As a follower of Christ, we should expect trials. If we, though not longing for them, anticipate them, we won't be derailed and discouraged when they do come. But mentally and spiritually prepared, and able to endure them with both patience and purpose. So James has shown us that trials are to be expected, and that testing produces steadfastness. Steadfastness produces uh, perfects our faith. The next question is, how do I withstand the trials? It is well known that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. What made Solomon wise was not his natural ability or unique, unique intellect. It was his request. Given the opportunity to ask for anything, he chose to ask for wisdom. He sought it. That is our charge as well. And we are not to ask as if we are expecting to be denied. James tells us, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The man or woman who asks of God while anticipating less in return will be granted their expectation. God, I ask for wisdom though I doubt you shall actually grant it. Why would God respond to that? It shows a distrust of him. It's not yourself you're doubting. If you are asking for wisdom, it's because you already recognize your need. But if your request is wrapped in doubt, it is God you are doubting. Or you really don't want wisdom. We would all love to have an instant download of wisdom like Neo in the Matrix, but Scripture tells us this is not how it happens And life does as well. It is through spiritual exercise that our faith muscles develop and grow stronger. And spiritual exercise is defined by perseverance. Just as an athlete perseveres in the application of his body, so does the saint in the application of his faith. Trials bring a necessary season to seek wisdom from God. We often don't know we need wisdom until the time of our difficulty arrives. Once in the time of trial, we need to know if a particular trial is something God wants us to eliminate by faith or persevere in by faith. This requires wisdom. In trials, we need wisdom a lot more than we need knowledge. 
Knowledge is, is raw information. Wisdom knows how to use it. Someone once said that knowledge is the ability to take things apart, but wisdom is the ability to put things together. Asking for wisdom is not like asking for a higher intelligence level. What you are asking for is to have the path you should take to be made known to you. And when you ask, don't ask for crumbs or pittance. Our God is generous. God does indeed give liberally. He gives according to his excellent greatness. Alexander the Great came upon a poor beggar asking for a couple of copper coins. Instead, Alexander gave him a handful of gold. When one of Alexander's aides questioned why he would give so much more than was deserved, Alexander replied, The business is not what thou art fit to receive, but what it becometh me to give. If a tyrant like Alexander the Great could be so generous, how much more so our Heavenly Father? God gives according to His desires, not our expectations. It's not about us, what we want or want to be. God gives not to glorify us, but to equip us to glorify Him. Seek His will above your own, and He will equip you to the degree He desires. When we need wisdom, the place to begin and end is the Bible. True wisdom will always be consistent with God's Word. Prayer and Scripture are the keys. Prayer establishes and reinforces the relationship with our Heavenly Father. And through that relationship and the connectedness it brings, the Holy Spirit will show us in Scripture what we need. The language here also implies humility in coming to God. It says, but let him ask in faith. Our request for wisdom must be made like any other request, in faith, without doubting God's ability or desire to give us wisdom. There is a big difference between praying to God saying, I can't do this, and meaning you won't, versus praying, I can't do this, and meaning you recognize it is only through faith and relying upon the Father that you could even persevere. So already we've covered the fact that we should expect trials. We've explained that steadfastness results through being faithful in the midst of trials. And we've discussed that seeking wisdom is how we remain steadfast. Now let's talk about what results from being steadfast. There is a phrase used throughout the New Testament that describes heavenly reward for the steadfast believer, that is, the crown of life. James states, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This this is spoken of by more than just James. Throughout the New Testament, we see this phrase repeated. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into the prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Also, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. 
Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. Also, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This reference is not to a jewel-encrusted crown a king or a queen would wear. It's more like a, an allusion to the laurel wreath given to winners in athletic games or to victorious emperors. The reward for faithful perseverance is eternal life with all its abundant blessings. The eternal life we, the steadfast, will enjoy will be a glorious crown showing their victory in life and Christ's victory in death. So the steadfast will be blessed. So what does it mean to be blessed? Well, Psalm 1, verse 1 begins by stating what it is to be blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessing is the result of action. Loving God, loving others, serving giving of oneself. It is not formula-based. I can't crank out enough faithful actions to automatically elicit a specific degree of blessing. But it is an if-then proposition. Blessings are the result of remaining steadfast. Recognize that blessing and mercy are not the same. Both saved and unsaved receive mercy or unwarranted favor. Rain on the crops sun on our face, all receive these wonderful things. But blessings are reserved for those whom God loves, to whom he smiles upon. He will receive the crown of life. This is the promise to all those who love God. To love God is to persevere, to remain steadfast, to trust that the Lord is good even when life isn't. We are called to recognize that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. We can be tempted to think and claim that when life goes well, it's our doing. My intelligence helped me maneuver that problem, or my skills helped me overcome. Those thoughts can quickly well up in our minds. But every good thing comes from God. Perhaps he guided the outcome to a result that was positive for you despite your skills and intelligence, or maybe lack thereof. Or if, you truly, if it was truly due to your own ability, the question then is, who gave you that ability? Your creator, of course. There is a special gift of blessedness from God to the one who can say no to temptation and thereby say yes to God. Job is a salient example of someone who suffered and endured trials and remained steadfast throughout, even beyond his understanding of his own ability. Nothing in that experience was pleasant or seemingly beneficial to Job. No human support or encouragement, apparent silence from God, yet still Job remained steadfast and loyal to his Creator. Why did Job endure? Because he loved God. This describes the very motive for resisting temptation, because of our love for God. The passions of sinful temptation can only be really overcome by a greater passion, 
And that is the passion for the honor and the glory and relationship with our Creator. Some resist temptation because of their fear of man. The thief suddenly becomes honest when he sees a policeman. The man or woman controls their lust because they couldn't bear to be found out and thus embarrassed. Others resist the temptation to one sin because of the power of another sin. The greedy miser gives up partying because he doesn't want to spend the money. But the best motive for resisting temptation is to love God, to love him with greater power and greater passion than your love for the sin. Know that temptation does not mean a weak faith. Don't question your faith because you're tempted. No faith means no temptation. Because by definition, temptation speaks to an internal battle between two natures. The lost have but one nature since they have not been born again. Also, Satan tempts. God tests. But the same trial may be both a temptation and a trial. And it may be a trial from God's side and a temptation from Satan's side, just as Job suffered from Satan, and it was a temptation. But he also suffered from God through Satan, so it was a trial to him. You see, what God desires for you is otherworldly. All good things come from God. Not just that God only gives us good things, but that good things originate from no other source. Yet, we know this is a fallen world, and nothing truly good comes from the world. Therefore, God wants for you what is beyond this world and is eternal. And the problem is we have limited vision. We remain focused on what we can see and touch, and that severely limits our ability to discern what is good. As I wrap up, I want to circle back to where I started, that trials are promised and should be expected to many. Hearing this seems terribly disappointing or even discouraging. We might say, but I don't want trials. Our mortal eyes and sensory-driven bodies make it incredibly difficult to properly view what trials are. The fact that we will have tribulation should not be dispiriting or discouraging, but it should be galvanizing. It should spur within us a resolute spirit. If trials are provided and allowed by God for our benefit, it means we are counted on by our Heavenly Father. God will not test you beyond your ability. That means He has confidence in you. He wants you to have confidence in yourself too. And though it may not feel like it, trials are often given as a gift to understand where your ability to persevere stands and also be given the opportunity to become stronger. So I want you to take heart, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't be surprised or distraught when trials appear, for they are prepared by God specifically for you. They are not random or malicious. They are part of the path God has laid out for you. And he will be with you throughout the entire process, whether you feel his presence or not. Remember, stay alert, stay alive. Alive for Christ. Ready to persevere whatever comes your way. In this, you may one day enjoy the crown of life, knowing that your sacrifices and dedication to your Savior do not go unnoticed or unappreciated, but that you will reap the blessings of God as one who loves him. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we're to be honest, we will tell you we don't want trials. We don't want tribulations. We don't really want patience. Yet we recognize our need for them. God, had we designed the process of growing our faith and proving it, we'd have picked something much simpler and easier. And the results would have diminished in, the, in accord with that difference. We recognize that you are perfect in every aspect of your nature, including your design for us. And so we humbly submit to the fact that as believers, we will experience trials, that we will experience tribulations, and that we are called to persevere. And God, we come before you recognizing that Though it varies among us, we each have a limit to our ability to sustain ourselves in the midst of that. And we ask that we will be ready and willing and quick to rely upon you. We ask for your Holy Spirit to make itself known to us and present and felt. That we will, not just intellectually, but within our hearts, feel the assurance that we are firmly within Christ's grasp no matter what we face And even if it's something truly horrible, maybe even life-threatening, that we will remember that this is just but a fleeting moment, this time of mortality on this earth. And that once we pass to the other side, it will be an eternity with you in your presence. God, we don't know what comes before us but we know that something is. And I ask that we have that mindset. I ask that for myself. That it will transpire beyond just an intellectual knowledge that, yes, some trial will come my way. Then my eyes will be open and I'll be looking for what it is so I will not be surprised by it. I will not be derailed by it. And I'll be able to respond in a proper and just manner that glorifies you. And I ask that for each of us here this morning. We pray this in the glorious name of your son, Jesus, who endured trials and tribulations beyond anything we could conceive. Amen.